Acts 8, verses 26 to 40 here today. We're going to finish up Acts chapter 8. And last week, if you were with us, and even if you were with us and you still don't remember, um, like I often do, um, last week we studied how the gospel started to spread beyond Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem. When Acts began, the believers were all gathered together in Jerusalem, just as Jesus had told them to be, and they waited for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came and empowered them in radical supernatural ways, and they began to preach the gospel. And as they did that, the word of Jesus, the good news about Jesus, began to spread, and many people throughout the city of Jerusalem started getting saved. They were inviting their friends and telling their neighbors, and everybody was hearing about this Jesus guy. And many, many people, thousands of people, the scripture tells us, were saved in a, in a relatively short period of time. But with that um, newfound uh, faith happening, it also garnered, as we saw, some ultimately persecution. We saw some of the, the religious leaders that had been part of the establishment for all those years. They started feeling the pressure of, hey, they're taking our people, and hey, they're, they're growing too fast, and hey, what's going on here? They're going to destroy everything that we know and love. And so ultimately, what we saw um, in the past couple of weeks as we saw that persecution started so much that they ended up killing uh, Stephen, one of the believers, and, and, and murdering him. And then begin, they began to go from house to house arresting these believers. All right? And so then what we saw is that from that, just as Jesus told them ahead of time, he said, what's going to happen is the Holy Spirit's going to fall. You're going to be empowered. You're going to be my witnesses. You're going to start telling people about me. And that's all going to happen in Jerusalem. But from that point... It's going to spread. And last week we saw Philip, one of the the believers there, go into the region of Samaria. And he brought the gospel over there. And and from that, um, that's where the the gospel began spreading apart from the pure-blooded Jewish community that was in Jerusalem. Now to these other people groups in these other regions and areas. And today we're going to look at another story of God directing Philip to a very unexpected location. To share the gospel. And we start here in verse 26 of Acts chapter 8. And here's what it says. It says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. Now let's just stop right there. Now if you're thinking, Gaza, I recognize that name. I've been hearing a lot about Gaza recently. You're exactly right. And this isn't a coincidence. This is actually the same place that's been in the news every single day, right, since November. Gaza, the Gaza Strip. I've got a little map here for you that I want to show you a little bit um, here today. hope you can see this thing. Um, it's a little small. I'm sorry for that. But I'll try to give you an idea. So if you've been, if you've been uh, seeing some of what's been happening in the news, you might recognize this little area in orange here, the Gaza Strip. And like I said, that is the very same Gaza that we're hearing about in the news. This is where the, the fighting has been going on. Jerusalem is up here. Um, this is the region of Judea. This is Samaria, where Philip was last week. This is the Jordan River that attaches the Dead Sea down here to the Sea of Galilee up here. It's the Mediterranean. All right, so Israel, you get this. All right, and there's a road, a desert road, that would come from Jerusalem down here toward Gaza. Now, Um, You can leave that up there for a second. Gaza was originally the capital city of the Philistines, 
okay? And that goes back into the Old Testament with the Philistines. It was also the location, if you're familiar with the story back in the book of Judges about Samson, the strong man with the long hair, um, Samson and Delilah, that's where Samson died, was in Gaza, in the temple of Dagon. Um, that it comes from the Old Testament there. And, and Gaza was an important city on the trade route from Asia to Africa. Now, this is why. So Asia would be all around here, <laughs> out here, okay? But there was a road that came right along the coast. It was called the Way of the Sea, Right along the coast here, right through Gaza, all the way down here, this is the beginnings of Egypt over here, down into Africa, all right? And so that road was a major trade route, and it would go all the way from Asia all the way down through Africa. But also, Gaza happened to be the place where the, the, the way of the desert, which was another trade route, which came down here from what is now today Saudi Arabia, the Arabian Peninsula, it came north, and it connected right here in Gaza, so Gaza was the kind of the connection point, the crossroads between two major trade routes in the ancient world. And because of that, it was always a war zone. Always a war zone. So it's no surprise that here today, Gaza is still having battles fought. But in the ancient world, it was, it was even, even worse. You can turn that light back on. I'm done with that, that map. Um, and, and actually, just in the ancient world, just to give you how big of an idea, or an, an idea of how big this zone was, in the ancient world, it had been held by the Egyptians, the Philistines, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, the Byzantines, the Crusaders, the Muslims, and the Ottomans. All right? Every one of those changing of, you know, leadership was a war. <laughs> All right, so this area was always a mess. It was always being destroyed, always being rebuilt because it was such an important place, but always being turned over throughout history, okay? And that just gives you a little background info there for for Gaza and what Gaza is all about. And this wasn't just like a whim that that Philip had where he's like, oh, I think I'll go check out Gaza. No, that's not what we see here, right? In verse 26, what what did we see? I don't want you to miss this. It says, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, I want you to go down the, on this road to Gaza. I want you to head that way. An angel gave Philip these instructions. And as we've seen in, in Acts, especially this, this early section of Acts, there was this concentration of incredible works that God was doing. These, a lot of radical things happened early on here as, as God is intervening to spread the gospel out. But even then... He still is choosing people to use people to do his work. I mean, think about this. Why couldn't God have just sent the angel straight to this mission that he's about to send him on? Why send a person? Because that's the way God tends to do things. He'll use an angel as a messenger for something, but most of the time he's wanting to bring in people to do his work, to share in the work. He could have sent the angel, but he sent Philip. And I also want you to notice that it says there, it was a desert place what do you find in the desert besides in our deserts you don't have to go very far to get to the desert right just drive east for a little while and pretty soon it gets pretty deserty and besides quads and guys on motorcycles like what's out in the desert not a whole lot I mean now a bunch of RVs um, but just dunes and dirt and very little wildlife and some cactus you know there's not much in the desert But what is on Philip's heart right now? 
Philip has just had all that radical experience in Samaria where everybody starts coming to the Lord. He's an evangelist. Where does an evangelist want to be? He wants to be where it's hopping, where it's happening, where there are people to evangelize. The last place that Philip, an evangelist who is riding high on the Holy Spirit and wanting to go evangelize, is out to the desert somewhere. He's like, no, 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 save that for the contemplatives. I'm the evangelist, God. You're talking to the wrong guy. Send me to the people. Send me to Rome. Send me to Alexandria. Send me somewhere where there's lots of people and I can share the gospel with. But God had a plan for Philip here. And God sends him to meet a certain person that we meet in verse 27. Here's what it says. Philip, being obedient, he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Now, Luke, the author of Acts, gives us several details about this man that I want you to to look at and pay attention to. First off, he tells us that this guy was an African. All right? It also tells us that he was a eunuch. Now, if you don't know what a eunuch is, you can talk to John Welch after service and he'll describe it all to you. A eunuch was a male servant that was usually sterilized for the work that he had to do. Okay? They didn't want him distracted by anything. And it was a pretty... Yeah. Talk to John. Um, So... So you've got this, he's a eunuch. He also tells us he was the top financial officer of this whole nation. All right? He was a big shot. And he was serving Candace, it says, Candace the queen. Now, for you history buffs that really love this stuff, Candace wasn't her personal name. You know, you may know people named Candace. It's a name that we use. But Candace was actually a title that was passed down just like Pharaoh was, or president, or prime minister. Candace was passed down from queen to queen in this region of Africa. Now, it it probably, even though um, she's called the queen of the Ethiopians here, it's probably not modern-day Ethiopia. Um, The term was used at the time, in the ancient time, for any part in Africa that was south of Egypt. All right? So Egypt was its own place, but outside of Egypt, it was all Ethiopia. All right? Um, Some scholars think that it was likely the queen of a Nubian kingdom in what is in modern-day Sudan, which is just south of Ethiopia or south of Egypt today, um, there was a a, a queen-led kingdom at, during this time in that region, and so that's where they think it was most likely where he was coming from. All right, so so those are some of the things that we know about this man. But what we also see about this man is that he was doing something that would not be expected from someone like him, someone who was this wealthy official from Africa, and that is. He's worshiping the Jewish God, the God of the Hebrews, the God of this tiny little nation outside of his own country that was very um, insular and closed. It was a group of Jews that worshiped Yahweh, not an African official from hundreds of miles away. So this was a very different thing. And, And as far as we can tell, because it says here that he had been in Jerusalem to worship, what it seems is that he is, is worshiping the God of Israel as a convert coming through here. And not only that, he's reading the Bible. All right? and, and the passage uh, uh, that he's reading um, is, is found in Isaiah 53. 
So what do we know about this man is not only do we know those details about him, but we recognize that he's a spiritual seeker. He's wanting to know about God. He's been raised in a culture of polytheism, meaning there's all these gods in all these ways. But somehow, and we don't know how, he he stumbles across this idea that there is this one God that is the God above all gods. And he hears about Yahweh and hears some of these stories. Perhaps he heard about it from Egypt, from some of the things that had happened with Israel coming out of Egypt. We don't really know. But somewhere in all that, he's, somewhere in his heart, he's like, I think this may be where God, I can find God. And so he goes out of his way to come up and find out and come and worship here in Jerusalem. He was certainly wealthy and powerful, but he was seeking something or someone greater than himself. I, I think it's, it's pretty amazing, you know, when we, we look at the Bible, uh, sometimes we think, you know, Okay, well, we, especially you go through the Old Testament, and you're like, all right, God has a special place in his heart for Israel, his people, the, the people that he's called to be himself, called to himself. But I think it's a beautiful thing to see here that here's God seeing this, little, this man. <laughs> here's this guy in Africa who, who wants to know him, and God sees him, and that's a beautiful thing. God is like, ah, that guy, he, he wants to know me. I'm going to send somebody to him, all right? It's a, it's a, really, it's a really incredible thing. Um, God still watches. He's watching every person. I think that this man's story is going to be really interesting to hear about in heaven. Uh, we, don't, we don't know for sure um, what his role would be when he returned home to the queen. I don't know. Uh, as Philip is going to evangelize here to him, um, you know, maybe he's the one who would bring the gospel into that whole part of Africa. I don't know, but I'm sure that God had a plan here for him. And let's pick up there in verse 29. Um, so he's sitting in his chariot, he's reading the prophet Isaiah, and in verse 29 it says, And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, Well, how can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. And as I told you, this is from Isaiah 53. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb, before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Now, first off, I want to say I love Philip's courage to do this. All right? This wasn't Philip's neighborhood. This wasn't a place that he was comfortable with. He's out in this deserted place. And and what does he do? He's called here by God to go and approach this chariot of this wealthy man traveling. A man who didn't look anything like him. A man who was probably surrounded by servants and guards. I think sometimes you picture the, the Ethiopian as he's like driving his own chariot. No way, guys. This is an entourage. Right? This is a really wealthy guy from a, a high-ranking official. He would have had soldiers with him. He would have had servants around him. 
He's sitting in the most plush Rolls Royce chariot that you could imagine. And he's cruising along here. And here's Philip, this guy from Jerusalem who's wandering around evangelizing. And what does he do? It has to be kind of on the run, right, to catch up with the chariot. The chariot's cruising along. And he runs up because the, the spirit has told him, hey, go catch up to this chariot. He runs up alongside of him. And this, this man is, is reading out loud, which, by the way, that is the, the traditional way that they would have been reading in this time. They always read out loud. I still haven't heard a good reason of why they did that, but they just say that's the way it was. So they're reading out loud. He's reading out loud, and he's running up along. He's like, hey, I, do you know, you know what you're reading here? And what happens? This, this, this big shot looks over at this little man, and instead of saying, hey, kill that guy, what's he say? He says, hey, no, how else am I going to know unless somebody knows about this? You know about this? Come on up here with me. And what's Philip do? He hops up in the chariot and begins to have this conversation. That would have been intimidating. That took some courage from Philip to go and do this. And so he's in the, the chariot. But I also admire the Ethiopian's passion to figure all this out. He's the, he's the guy with the power. He's the one with the authority. He's the one with the responsibility. And yet he here is willing to, to say, hey, I don't know what I'm reading here. I don't understand this. Here's some random guy who seems to know something. Hey, can you tell me? I'll, he's humble enough to receive this. And he's passionate to figure this out. He's traveled hundreds of miles at great expense to learn about the Lord. In fact, he even purchased a scroll of Isaiah. And don't miss this because hardly anyone in this era could have had their own copies of Scripture. This is amazing that this guy has this, and it's mobile, and it's going with him. Remember, this is 1,400 years before the mechanical printing press was invented. Okay? So for him to have a scroll of Scripture, it was a hand-copied manuscript that had no doubt cost him a lot of money to get. And he had to go probably to great efforts. This might be even why he went to Jerusalem to end up with one of these scrolls. So he has this incredibly valuable um, piece of scripture here with him that he's trying to understand. It wasn't just like a you know, free download on his iPad right, of the Bible. We, we all have Bibles, many Bibles. If you need a Bible, you can get one. They're, they're easy now, but it, this took major effort to get it. And he's reading it. And he knows as he's reading it, there's truth hidden in these words. He's hungry for God. And, and in that, he asks a good question. He says, I'm reading this passage, and I don't know who he's even talking about. Who is this? What is this? What's going on? He's talking about his life being taken away from the earth and and, and, uh, being led to the slaughter and, and humiliation. What's going on here? What is this all about? And so what does Philip do? He jumps right in to share the gospel. He knows this is my task. And where does he start? Right where he finds the man. In a chariot. In the desert, with the words of Isaiah. Sounds like a game of Clue, right? (laughs) This is where it is. Here's what's going on. Now, two things I want to point out here before we move on. We've learned as a church, and we'll continue to learn as a church, that, (coughs) excuse me, spiritual health requires a few key things. And we've kind of reduced it down to this formula that says there's three main things, three main categories that are necessary for good spiritual health and growth. The first one is that we gather together in worship. Gathering in worship really matters. 
All right, that's the, the first one. Secondly, um, in order for us to grow spiritually, um, we know that connecting in community really matters. And third, we also have described the way reaching in ministry helps us grow spiritually. So uh, with all of those things, they're, they're all key components. And when we're talking about this, reaching in evangelism, as Philip is doing, I want you to know, when, whether it's evangelism or service or outreach, that whole area of our spiritual lives, um, it's usually a learned skill. It usually has to be learned. All right? You may have an idea of each of those three categories, but a lot of times you have to learn each one of those things. You know, you may believe, hey, yeah, it is important that I worship God. But how do I worship God? It's really important that I'm connected to a community, that people know me and I know them. But how do I do that? It's really important that we get out and share the gospel. You know, we've heard the great commission of Jesus. We know we're supposed to go out and share. We know we're supposed to serve others and love others. But how, how do I do that? Now, I know that there are some of you who just naturally reach out to others. It's part of how you're wired. But for most of the rest of us, we have to learn it. But it's a key part of our purpose as members of the family of faith. Peter wrote it this way in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. He says, but you, he's talking to Christians, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And why? He tells us that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Actions might speak louder than words, but words bring clarity to our actions. What he's saying here in this is he's saying, yes, you are saved. You are the people of God. You're this holy priesthood. You're set apart. You're called by his name. But it's for a purpose. It's for a purpose. It's for a purpose that you would go and proclaim the excellencies of him who called you. And so from that, I want to just mention two key lessons that I think that we see here in this passage that help us learn how to reach better. How do we do this? How do we reach better? Um, and, and the first one of these, you've probably heard me say, if you've been around here very long, and um, I think it works, so I'm going to describe it. The first one is, you've got to look for ripe apples, okay? What do I mean by that? Look for ripe apples. Um, my, my girls and I, over Thanksgiving week, we drove up to Julian. And, you know, Julian, you can still do the apple picking thing, because there's a lot of apple trees up in Julian, all right, but this is kind of late in the season for apple picking. So we were going on a walk, and we walked by this um, farm and, uh, that had apples on it. But you could look over and still see apples on the tree, right? So you, you we're walking along, and you see all these apples, these you know, pretty red apples on the tree. But what you also see at this time of year especially is a lot of apples that have fallen and are kind of rotting on the ground, all right? A few unripe apples may be on the tree, but for the most part, it's either they're on the tree or they're on the ground already. Okay, And when I'm talking about looking for ripe apples as it comes to evangelism, what I mean by that is you really need to look for those that are ready to hear the message. If we had taken a little basket to walk out into that field to pick some apples to take home with us, which ones do you think you're going to want to pick? The ripe ones, the good ones, the ones that are on the tree. 
You're not going to want to scrape these partially rotten apples off of the ground and throw them into your basket to take home with you, right? You don't want those. Um, and honestly, the ones that aren't ripe yet, they're probably not going to ripen on their own. They're apples. So they need to ripen on the tree. So you're not going to pick those either. The ones you're going to pick are going to be the ones that are ready to eat, ready to use, ready to make pie out of, right? That's what you're going to pick. Now, this is what I mean. Um, I don't mean that people that aren't ready to hear the gospel are rotten apples on the ground. I don't want you to hear that. <laughs> That's not what I'm describing. But what I'm saying is when it comes to evangelism, when it comes to sharing our faith, often there is a time and a place for evangelism. And we want to be people that are sensitive to recognize when it is that God is, has brought that person to a spot they're ready to receive the gospel. And that is the way it is all the time. The Bible tells us that nobody comes to the Father unless they've been drawn by the Father. And there's a timing with people, and you guys have many testimonies of the way that this worked. It might have been this way for you personally. There's a timing involved. There's circumstances that have to happen in your life. There's big events that may happen. There may be places that get really hard. A lot of times that's when people come to faith. It's when they're at their bottom, when it is at the worst of the worst in their lives, right? And that's the space where they're like, okay, I can't do it anymore. I've been trying and maybe there's a God. And, and a lot of times that's the point where God can draw that person in. But as people that are sharing the gospel, we don't always want that, right? Because each of these apples on the tree, they've got a name on them. And we know who those people are. And for us, we're like, I don't care if they're ripe or rotten. I want that person to come to Christ. Right? We've all got that list of people. I could rattle off five, ten names right now that I'm like, okay, if God would save five or ten people, here's my top five. But they may not be ripe. They may not be ready. And as, as believers that are sharing the gospel, we have to be, we're walking with God in his work. We're assisting him in doing what he's doing. God is the only one that can save people. We cannot force that apple to get ripe when it's not going to be ripe. We have to walk with him in it, and we have to learn to recognize that. Philip, in this case, he had the advantage of being led to the desert road, led to the chariot, but he also recognized very quickly, this guy's ready to hear the message. He's right here, and this is where this evangelism opportunity is going to take me. But we need to learn to discern those who are ready to hear. And I think that comes from constant conversation with God and a sensitivity to the people around us. Learn to walk through the doors that the Lord opens. And one of the best ways to do this is by learning to listen to people. You've got to listen to God and you've got to listen to people. What do I mean by that? What happens when you've got a friend at work that tells you about how lonely they are. Now, you might immediately say, well, let me take you to match.com. We'll figure this out, you know? <laughs> right? But that's also an open door and an opportunity for you to start sharing about, hey, there's a God in the Bible who, who meets us in our loneliness. If, if you're talking with somebody um, who, who has a lot of regret about their lives, and they're telling you, man, I blew it when I, from the time I was 13 years old. My life's been a wreck ever since because I did this and that and this happened. And I've got all these regrets. What do we get to share as evangelists? Ooh, I hear this. This is my opportunity. Let me tell you about God's forgiveness. Let me tell you about how God will take care of that sin and wipe that out. Right? That's, that's, that's going on. 
Or it may be something about grief. They're going through grief. They've lost somebody close to them. They're in a heavy place. What can we share about the good news of Jesus? He's a God of comfort. And he wants to comfort us. He comforts us that we can comfort others. And let me tell you about how God's comforted me in my life. People that are hopeless, looking for meaning, we can share the hope of Jesus. This is a time of year where we talk about all these hope and peace and love and joy, right? Guys, how many people do you know that would do anything for those four things in their life? This is a perfect opportunity when you see those things, when you hear those things from people to be able to say, hey, let me tell you about this. Right? And at that point, their, their hearts may be ripe to hear what you want to say. So the first thing is, is um, look for those ripe apples. Secondly, I think this is important as we share our faith. It, it's good to know enough to share. Now, here's what I mean by that. We don't need to all have PhDs in theology and biblical interpretation. All right? Um, in order for us to reach into our world with a gospel. But... We can all know the essentials of the faith and and the general scope of what the Bible tells us and teaches us. There will always be questions that you can't answer. Always, no matter how educated you get about this. But don't let that stop you from sharing the parts you do know. Because a lot of times when people are scared to share their faith, that's what's stopping them. They're like, well, you know, I would really like to share my faith, but I, I, I'm not real sure about all my eschatology quite yet. You know, I, do, do I know what Amos 3 says? I got to think about, you know, like, and they'll, they'll come up with all these excuses of, well, I, you know, the Trinitarian theology of this. And it's like, come on, back up. You don't have to go down all that path. What do you know? You know that God so loves the world that he gave his son. You know that he created us and he loves us. He wants to be with us. You know that just like you, that person you're talking to has a sin problem. But that Jesus came to forgive us our sins and give us new life. And not only that, but desires and invites us to be with him for eternity. Those are the basics of the faith. And you can share that. We can all share that. We can know that. Every one of us can understand it and learn how to talk about it. Now, as we... um, when we prepare for communion today at the end of our service, we're going to look at Isaiah 53. So I'm not going to dive into that right now. Um, but this is the passage that they started from. And from that passage, that's what he did, right? That's what it tells us. It says, beginning with this scripture, he told them the good news about Jesus. Philip took that opportunity. Now, let's, let's read on in verse 36. It says this, And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more. He vanished and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. And he passed through, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to, to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Now, what it doesn't tell us directly here is that the Ethiopian eunuch not only heard the good news of Jesus, but he received it and believed it. All right? This is why he was excited to be baptized. 
Philip had gone through this whole thing and, you know, he talks about start, starting in Isaiah and says, hey, this is what they were, <coughs> excuse me, longing for as a people. And this is when this prophet Isaiah came and talked about these things. But these things weren't going to be fulfilled for a thousand years. But they were fulfilled. They were fulfilled in this guy named Jesus, who was the son of God who came to earth and he lived and he died and he rose again from the dead. And when he rose again from the dead, he appeared to his apostles and and to those apostles, he said, listen, you're going to go, I'm commanding you to go and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. What's this baptism thing? Well, it's this thing that represents what happens in your life. And we we dunk people underwater and this takes place and it's a sign that you're a believer. And he goes through the whole thing with this eunuch. And so as they're cruising along here in the chariot, the eunuch sees this and he's like, wow, this is amazing. I want to be baptized. What, what, what should stop me from being baptized? And, and just to, to give you a, a good, clear definition of baptism and understanding of this, baptism is an outward expression of an inward reality. Okay? An outward expression of an inward reality. And from the early church on, those who heard the gospel, received the gospel, repented of their sins, and believed would get baptized. All right? It's a symbol of the death of our old person and the new life that we found in Jesus. And we have been resurrected with him. Romans 6, 3, and 4 describes it. It says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So we're baptized into his death. What death? It's the choice to put off the old ways of life. The death that we talk about in baptism is that old way of doing things. Our old desires, our old passions, our old sinful nature. It's putting that off. It's a determination to leave sin behind. Now, no one is sin-free and perfect when they get baptized. All right? Nobody is. But what we want to have is a clear conscience before God to say, I'm trying to put those things away, God. I'm choosing not to live that way anymore. If there's outstanding things in my life that need to be dealt with, I'm dealing with those, and now I'm coming to you for this new life. Being baptized does not save you, but if you are saved, you should be baptized. Okay? The eunuch's baptism was obedience to the command of Jesus and expression of his belief. That's why he was baptized. Now, don't miss this because there's some poetic beauty in this event. Because remember, this was a desert place. What do you not find in the desert that they found in the desert? Water. This is a desolate, empty, void area. But as they're cruising along here, all of a sudden, what do they find? Water. Water in the desert. And I think that this coincidence was God's doing. Water in the desert. Life from a deserted place. God knew exactly when and where to send Philip to minister to this man. And he knew that there was a, at least a puddle of water somewhere. Um, maybe a beautiful oasis. I, we don't know. But he, he knew that that was what was going on. He knew where to send him. And we all have people that we love and care for whose lives are in the desert right now. 
desolate and empty. And God can bring water to the desert. So what would I tell you if you know somebody like that that comes to your mind when you think about a life that's just deserted? Don't give up on those people. Pray for those people. Encourage them. Love them. God is doing a lot of things in the world that is invisible to us. He's built in processes into his creation that work in hidden ways, sometimes mysterious ways. But God's always at work. So how do we, how do we begin to wrap up here today? Because here's the other thing I don't want to miss in this, is that, that maybe you are the one, when you hear a story like this, or when I talk about a kind of a desert experience in your life, maybe you're like, oh, actually, that's me. I don't even have to go farther than me to think about somebody who's got a deserted life right now. Maybe that's what you need today. Maybe you need water in your life. So ask yourself that, you know, does my life resemble a desert right now? Does my spiritual life feel pretty dry and pretty empty? God can meet you there. Jesus, one of the ways that he described himself is as the water of life. In John 4.14, Jesus speaking, he said this. He said, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He goes on in John 7 to say, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Where do we find the water? Where do we get it? Well, we we get it here. We find it in the word. We find it in worship. We find it in the community of believers. We find it in fellowship. And we find it by the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit. And so today, today as we finish um, with our message here, I think I'd like to do this. Um, I'd like to give you an opportunity to, to... I'd like to pray for you, and I'd like to do it in this way. Um, Maybe for some of you here, you're like, that's me. I need to be filled. I need to be refreshed. I need to be encouraged. I need the living water to pour into me and pour out of me. Um, And if that's you, I'm going to pray for you here in a minute. But also, I think especially at this time of year, I'm not sure why it works this way, but it does work this way for me too. I think that when I'm confronted with the hope and joy of Christmas, and the, the beauty of Christmas lights and decorations and thinking about that, it almost um, stirs something in my heart, not almost, it stirs something in my heart where I start thinking about people that don't have the real joy of Christmas, that don't know eternal life, that don't know Jesus. And so on my heart, what happens is I kind of get burdened for people. And so today, um, that's the second group of people that I'd like to pray for here today. And we're going to do it this way. I'm going to have in a second, any of you who want prayer today, that you would be filled with the water of the Spirit, I'd ask you to stand up. And also, if any of you have somebody that you'd like to kind of represent, so then you don't have to worry about people thinking, well, they must really have a dry spiritual life. They're standing at church to be prayed for. Um, it's, it's not that. You could also be standing representing somebody else, somebody else that you want to just have prayer for, and, and we'll intercede for them here today. All right? So as we wrap up together, um, I want to invite whoever would like to stand up for that, for that purpose. If you, if you want to, go ahead and stand up where you're at. Um, or if you know somebody that you'd like prayer for, stand up. 
And I'm going to pray for us um, before we wrap up our service with communion. All right? So close your eyes, please, with me, and let's pray. Lord, you see your people here today. And just as you saw that Ethiopian eunuch all by himself seeking you, looking for you, and you saw him, Lord, I believe that today you see every single person that's standing here in this room. And I believe that today, just as you brought water from the desert for this eunuch, you want to bring water, spiritual water, into the lives of all those that are thirsty here today. And Jesus told us that when we're thirsty, when we're dry, when we're feeling just deserted and empty, he told us to come to him and that you, Lord, would fill us with living water. And so, Lord, first today I pray for all of those that are here in this room that are feeling empty, they're feeling dry, they feel like they need that spiritual water in their lives. And I pray right now that by your Holy Spirit you would begin filling them And it may not be something that's immediate and instantaneous that they feel, but it could be that too. But either way, Lord, I pray that they would just open themselves to receive whatever it is that you want to pour into their hearts today. Bless them, Lord. Encourage them. Strengthen them. Refresh their souls. Uh, As we saw early in Acts, where Peter preached and said, repent, that times of refreshing would come from the Holy Spirit. Lord, today I pray that here in this room, that times of refreshing from your Spirit would begin to just overflow people and refresh their souls. Minister to them, God. Meet them there. And secondly, Lord, I also want to pray for those that are standing just representing somebody else. And we all have those people. I'm standing here today representing someone else as well. And Lord, I pray that that God, you would do the work that you want to do. We pray that you would ripen those souls, that you would bring them to a place, these people that we're praying about right now, these people that are in our hearts right now, that you would bring them to a place to receive you. Maybe it would be receiving you for the very first time um, and being open to the gospel for the very first time. For others, it's those that have kind of walked away from you or rejected you and, and you want to call them back. You want to seek and save the lost. Whatever it is, Lord, we just pray right now in the name of Jesus that you would do a work in those hearts and that you would save souls, that you would transform their lives, that they would know the peace the peace that comes from Jesus, that they would know the hope that comes from walking with you, that they would know the joy that it is to walk with you, to have meaning in their life, and that they would know the love of God in their souls. And Lord, we can't do that. We can't make it happen, but you can. And so Lord, this morning we pray on their behalf that you would bring them to you that you would be glorified and honored, that we would be able to rejoice as we see lives changed and lives put on track. Do that work, we pray here today. And it is in your son Jesus' name that I pray these things. Amen.